All right, well, good morning. Listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Will Frankel. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church, and it's so good to be with you here. Again, I'm usually here about once a month, and so uh, if you're new here, that's my name. I'm Will Franco, and it's so good to be with you here. Now, I want to personally just take a second and welcome the traditional service uh, who are being streamed in uh, from the East Worship Center. We are so glad you guys are here, and uh, it's the first time in a long time that I get to speak to them. It's one of my favorite crowds, actually, and so we want to just personally welcome you this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, now, this morning, we are actually, uh, actually beginning a brand new sermon series entitled One Story. One Story. And what we are doing in this series is we are going to be looking at the life of Abraham, but we're going to look at the life of Abraham through the lens of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this series, One Story, is that we're actually going to be continuing this series every summer. So every summer, we're going to do the same series, but we're going to be looking at a different character. But to start it off, we are starting by looking at the life of Abraham. Now, this morning, the passage that we are going to begin this series with is Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, go ahead and turn there now. But here's the thing. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, right, you, uh, you're familiar with church, you might be thinking right now, wait a second, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Because usually when we do series on, on, a, on a character like Abraham, usually we start in Genesis chapter 12. That's where his story begins. But the reason why we are starting in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 in particular, is because this morning we want to begin this series by looking at the Tower of Babel. And even though the Tower of Babel doesn't seem like it's connected to the story of Abraham, it is. It, it actually provides a lot of background and a lot of context for the story of Abraham. I would argue that you really can't understand Genesis 12 unless you begin in Genesis chapter 11. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, turn to Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9. Uh, and I'm going to start reading. But what I would love for you to do is to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Verse 1 of Genesis 11 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning, 
and we are so thankful for your word. God, we believe in light of what your word says that your word is perfect, uh, but the person delivering your word is imperfect. And so, Father, I pray that from the moment I say amen, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask it and we pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. You may be seated. All right, so like I mentioned, uh, this morning we are beginning this series and we are starting in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this, uh, this passage under two headings. We're going to look at this very well-known passage under two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at man's rebellion, which is found in verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to conclude by looking at God's response, which is found in verses 5 through 9. So we're going to see man's rebellion and then God's response. Now, this morning, I want to begin by looking at man's rebellion. Now, here's the thing about man's rebellion. That it almost seems like a too strong of a word to use. It feels like a preacher just exaggerating for the sake of a point. But the reason why man is rebelling in this passage is because when you look at the actual context of Genesis up to this point, they are actually directly disobeying what God had told them to do. So really, in, in, in when you look at, at, at the story, there's nothing necessarily wrong with building a city or building a tower. The issue, though, is that they were doing the exact opposite of what God had asked them to do. Now, the reason why I know that is because look at what God says in Genesis chapter 1. He's talking to Adam and to Eve, and he says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the what? The earth and subdue it. So God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he says to these people, I need you to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. Okay? Now, what we see, though, is when we get to this passage, that's not what they're doing. Now, if you're anything like me, I, I tend to be a rule breaker, right? I, my excuse would be like, well, the reason why they're not doing it, God, is because that was all the way in Genesis chapter 1. They don't know that. They didn't know that you had made that command. How could they know? They weren't doing anything wrong. They just didn't know you had made the command. But here's the problem. And here's why that excuse is actually completely off the table. Because then later on in Genesis chapter 9, God says it again. After Noah and his family get off the ark... God says, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. So two times in Genesis, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And so if the excuse was, oh, we didn't know, well, God repeated it just in case they didn't know. And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with a tower or a city. If there was, then the city of Chicago would be in sin right now, right? But the issue is not the architecture as much as it is their attitude. They were disobeying God in an area where he had specifically made a clear command. They were doing the exact opposite. They were directly disobeying what God had asked them to do, okay? So that's why this first point is uh, under the title of man's rebellion, because they were literally rebelling against God. 
Now, to really understand how bad uh, this rebellion was, what I want to do is I want to break this rebellion into two parts. They actually rebel in two ways. The first way in which man rebels is they rebel in what they built. By what they built, they showed their rebellion. But they also show their rebellion by why they built. So we see the rebellion in what they built, but we also see it in why they built it. Okay? So let's begin by looking at what they built. It's pretty straightforward, actually. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. They built a city in general and a tower in particular. That's what they did. Like I said before, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. The issue was that they were going directly against what God had told them to do. Here's the issue. Here's how one commentator put it, and I feel like it's a good summary of what was wrong with them. This group of people was building their identity, their community, and their uh, 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 security in something other than God. Their identity, their community, and their security was coming from something other than God. It was coming from an earthly city instead of a heavenly city. That's really at the heart of it what they were doing wrong. So what they built revealed just how sinful and wicked they were. What we see in Scripture is that God wants us to build, this is what Scripture is essentially arguing, that true unity, true community, true harmony can only be found around the Savior and not around a sin. It can only be found around the Savior and not a lesser substitute. That's the lesson that this story is trying to teach us. Now, here's the thing, though. Before we start getting uh, uh, judgy, right, before we start looking down at these primitive, uh, uh, sinful, wicked people, what we need to realize is that we are guilty of the very same sin. And, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're still considering Christianity, I, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm going to talk to the people who claim to follow Jesus, okay? We, as believers, are guilty of the very same sin. We are guilty, of, as Christians, of building our life around something smaller than Jesus. We do it all the time. And here's the thing. The reason why we have to be ultra careful when it comes to this area is because we live in a culture that worships harmony, that worships unity, that worships community. In our culture, in the Bible, community and unity are a means to an end. In our culture, they are an end in themselves. So our culture worships unity and harmony so much that they don't really even care what you're united around as long as you are united, even if it's a sin. Unity and harmony are the most important thing. And so we have to be ultra careful in our culture because we are more tempted than most in the culture that we live in. But let me give you an example or examples of how we as Christians, if we're not careful, can actually do the very thing that these individuals were doing. I'm going to give you some corporate examples, towers that we build around corporately, and then I'm going to give you some personal ones, towers that we, built around, that we build around personally. One of the towers that Christians are tempted to rally around 
and, and build unity around and, and, and find their identity in is politics. And you're like, whoa, 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 you're stepping on my toes, man. Come on, let's, let's, let's. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm aiming for your heart. How sad is it? Again, there's nothing wrong with politics, just like there was nothing wrong with the tower. But, but how sad is it when Christians are more known for who they vote for than who, for who died for them? So on Facebook, you won't say anything about Jesus, but you'll, you'll say something about the president. Or you'll say something about who you voted for or, or, or some policy. How ridiculous is that? Again, nothing wrong with those things. But when your primary identity, when your primary security, when your primary community comes around who you, who you vote for, and so you're closer to Republicans or Democrats than you are to Christians, that's a tower. But it's not just that. How many Christians here right now are building their, their community, instead of building around the tower or the cross of Jesus, they're building it around homeschooling. But we're a homeschooling family. We don't go to those secular schools where the sinners are. And your community is not found in the church, but it's found in some co-op. Again, nothing wrong with that. But your primary identity and security cannot come from where your kids go or don't go to school. But we do it all the time. All the time. Same thing is true of sports, for example. Right? We, 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 we got to get, one of the things that really bothers me, okay, and I'm just going to be honest, is when we have to think about our, our church times because there's a Bears game. How ridiculous is that? There's, there's, a, bear, there's a Bears game. We, gotta, we, gotta be, we, we can't do it. That, there's a Bears game. What? Are you kidding me? So we have more unity and community around a, 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 some, some fat guys with a football? That's what I'm saying. Like, we, we, we are so guilty of this. We, we don't even realize it. You, even, even, for example, things like the Enneagram. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the fan of the Enneagram. But how many Christians are, are building their identity, are building their community around a number instead of a savior? We have an Enneagram podcast and an Enneagram small group, an Enneagram t-shirt. See, we, we, we are so, we are all built to, we, we have been created by God to build our lives around something. But if it's not Jesus, then we're building our lives around something else. Now, those are just the corporate ones. Those are just the ones that are more uh, group focused. But how many of us individually are building our lives around our career? How many of us, the, the, the tower that we are building is the job that we have? And everybody knows it, just in case you don't know, everybody knows that's your, that's your tower. Everybody knows that's where your security is found. Everybody knows that's where your identity is found. Everybody knows because you're willing to give up anything because it's the center. of God's not at the center, but this thing is. That's the danger. That's, that's the issue. How many of us are building our lives around our career? For others, and this is an end, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to get personal here for a second. I don't know. Well, that's a mic. Okay, sorry. I just have a mic cord sticking out of my arm. Uh, for others, it's, it's not our career. It's our family. How many mothers, how many fathers 
are building their lives around their children. When their children succeed, they succeed. When their children fail, they fail. Literally, your calendar is built around your children. And so you only come to church twice a month because Billy has badminton practice. Billy's already in water polo and curling, but, but he needs to do badminton to get to Yale. Come on now. What are you teaching your children? Hey, Jesus matters, but not more than football, though. Right? Sorry, my mic is really, sorry. It just, I feel like, look at this, this is ridiculous. Look at this. I don't even know how that happens. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. I don't even know where that mic is. Anyways. There we go. All right. That's never happened in my life. Anyways. It feels like a snake's coming up my arm. Um, anyways. Right? So, so what we see is that if we're not careful, we can be building our lives around something smaller than Jesus. And whether you know it or not, that's what you're teaching your children. And so many Christian families will prioritize everything around their children, and, and, and church is optional because football is necessary or baseball or whatever sport they're in is necessary, and then your child goes to college and doesn't go to church and you're surprised. You were teaching them worldliness years ago. What do you expect them to do? That's the danger with this, that we are all tempted to build our lives around something. And if it's not Jesus, then you better believe it's something else. Okay? So, so the first thing that we see is that we see their sin in what they built. But their, but their sin and their rebellion is not just seen in what they built, but it's also seen in why they built it. It's not just the what, but it's the why. And according to this passage, there's actually three reasons why they built. And for those of you who were here, I, I, think about, about, I think maybe it was about two years ago, I preached on idolatry, the idols that we worship. And idols is like my favorite subject to talk about. And one of the things that I argued back then is that every single person in this room, if you have a pulse, Every person in here is motivated by one of those three S's. These are called deep idols or root idols. We all struggle with every single one of them, but by and large, one of them is our primary motivator. You can struggle. Your primary motivation can be significance, satisfaction, or security. The people who want significance, that's me, that's, I fall into that camp. The people who want significance, their primary motivation is to be seen, to be known, to be successful, to achieve, to be applauded. The people who are in the second category, the people who want uh, uh, a satisfaction, what they are motivated by is they have this inner desire to have comfort, to have peace, to have pleasure, to experience the good life. They just want to get to a place where everything is good. Actually, they're looking for the Garden of Eden and don't even realize it, but that's what they want deep down. They're motivated by comfort and by pleasure. They are seeking the good life. Then the third category is security. And the people who are in this category, what they want more than anything else is they want power, they want control, they want a plan. They want to be in a place where they know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. 
That's what they need more than anything else. Those are the three primary motivations of every person in this room. And like I said, all of us struggle with all three, but by and large, it's almost always one that we struggle with more. So, these are the three, because they're humans just like us, these are the three reasons why they built the city. The first reason is because of significance, and we see that in the passage because it says, they say, it says in uh, Genesis uh, 1 verse 4, it says that they did it in order to make a name for ourselves, it's so that we may make a name for ourselves. So the first reason why they are building is in order to make a name for themselves. They, they are, they are, they're literally at a point where they're like, I want to be known. I want to be seen. And so that's their primary motivation. For those of you who are in my camp, the significance camp, you're motivated by being seen, by being known. If you do something and it's not seen, it doesn't count, right? For those of you who are in that camp, what we need to be careful of is that all that work that we're doing in our families, at our job, is not necessarily to expand God's kingdom, but it's to grow our empire. Many of us, the reason why we're so motivated is because we are seeking to build, instead of seeking to grow and expand God's kingdom, we're trying to expand our empire. It's a very dangerous place to be. You know what's interesting? I, I'm back to the Enneagram. I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I'm an achiever. I have to do, 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 do. And then when I'm not doing something, I'm looking for something else to do. And one of the things that I have seen myself, one of the lies that I've seen myself believing is that if I can just get to this place, if I can just do this, I'll finally be known. I will finally be seen. The issue is when I do that, I'm not believing the gospel because the Bible says I'm already seen and I'm already known by the only eyes that matter. <laughs> I just don't believe that. See, I, it's funny because my biggest struggle is ambition. But when you see Scripture, Scripture actually has to, ambition in the Bible is not a bad thing. That's why whenever it talks about bad ambition, it puts the word selfish in front of it. Selfish ambition is what the Bible's against. Ambition is good, but selfish ambition is bad. And one of the things that the Lord convicted me of, literally, like just a few weeks ago, I, I, I'm in my living room, I'm on my knees, I'm praying, I'm, I'm processing with God, and the Lord convicted me with, your ambition is too small. Because your ambition has been to expand your empire instead of expanding my kingdom. But once you change your focus, your ambition can actually be much bigger because you're doing it for my glory and not for yours. You know you are struggling with significance. You know you are seeking to make a name for yourself when success goes to your head and failure goes to your heart. Now, the, third re the second reason why they were building is not just because of significance, but it's also because of satisfaction. Remember, these people want comfort. They want pleasure. Look what it says in the text. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. The word there, settled, in the Hebrew, it means to rest. It means to lie down. It means to abide. You know that the Bible says there's only one place where we should abide? It's in Jesus. But the people who are motivated by satisfaction, they are abiding, they are resting in something smaller than Jesus. They are settling for a smaller good, for a lesser pleasure, for a lesser peace, for a lesser shalom. 
They have settled. They are, they are there. They are all set. They don't want to go anywhere else. You know, one of the things I found interesting in the passage is that one of the reasons why God thwarts their plan is because God says, I want to keep them from succeeding. See, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but I always thought that the reason why God stops me from my, my sinful endeavors is to stop me from failing because I'm going to, you know, run into a wall at some point. Sometimes God stops you because he doesn't want you to succeed. Because if you succeed, then you're going to continue down that path thinking this is where my answer is found. God keeps them from being settled. Instead of allowing them to settle, he scatters them because he does not want them to settle or to find rest or to abide in anything other than him. And what's interesting is that in the Hebrew, the word settled, later on it says that God scatters them. The antonym, the exact opposite of the word settled in Hebrew is the word scatter. God does the exact opposite to get them moving because he didn't want them to find their rest or their comfort in anything other than him. So some of you, the reason why you're building a tower, you look at the people who are, who are all about significance and glory and competition, you're like, you're judging those people. You're like, oh, come on, man. You got to, who cares what people think? But actually, you're building a tower too. But it's just so that when you get to the top of it, you can finally rest. You can finally be at peace. You can finally find the abundant life. Then the third reason is security. Some build out of significance, some build out of satisfaction, and some this morning are building out of security. Now, here's what's, what I found fascinating in this passage. This is, I came across this blog post. He's the only person who actually mentions this, but I think it's, it's just so well said. And here's what it says in, in Genesis 11, 4. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, this, in many ways, is a statement of pride, right? Their heavens is where God dwells, and so they are trying to get to a place where God is. So I could easily have put this under significance, but the reason why I don't is because I came across this blog post, and here's what the author said. He said, part of the reason why these people were trying to build a tower that reached the heavens is because, remember, this was after the flood. They were building a tower that would keep them flood proof. The, the heavens is the one place where the water didn't get to. And so if I can build a tower tall enough, I will be safe. See, some people build a tower in order to glorify. Others build a tower in order to fortify. Some people build a tower out of self-glorification. Others build a tower out of self-preservation. And even though they look very different on the surface, they are both focused on the self. So maybe your, your spouse is the, the glorification and you're the preservation and you're judging your spouse like, look, look, look how, how ambitious, how sinful. And the reality is you're building your own tower, but instead of finding significance, you're trying to find your security. Both are sinful and both are focused on the self. Listen, if your life is anything like my life, for many of us, our lives look way more like Babylon than like Israel. We see in, in the story of Israel that the tabernacle was at the center and everyone was built, everything was built around God. Babylon, the tower was at the center and everything was built around man. If we're honest, and I'm trying to be here with you, my life looks a lot more like Babel than it does like Israel. So, that is the rebellion. 
Now that we've seen the rebellion, uh, what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to look at God's response. We've seen man's rebellion, and now I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at God's response. Look what it says in the passage. It says, but the Lord, what? Came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what we see here in this second part of the passage is that God responds in two ways to these people. He has a short-term response, and then he has a long-term response. Now, the reason why I'm giving you the short-term response first is because it's shorter, one, but two, because you're not ready for the long-term yet. Okay, you're not ready for it. I know you're not ready for it because I wasn't ready for it. As I was studying this passage this week and I start getting to the part where I saw to see God's long-term response, God's long-term solution, I had to take a praise break. I had to back up from my desk and I had to praise God for being better than we are. Okay? I literally at one point said, God, I am so thankful that this is my job, that I get to study your word because I learn something new every week. So I'm giving you the short term because you're not ready for the long term. All right, everybody say, we're not ready. All right, great. So let's begin with the short term. What we see is that God has a short term response to the problem. And I'm going to spend just a little bit on that because all you got to do is look at the passage. What God does in, in the short term is he literally disposes of everything that man proposes. Everything man proposes in verses 1 through 4, God disposes of in verses 5 through 9. So it says in, in Genesis, uh, in verses 1 through 4, that man went up in pride. And then in verse 5, it says that God came down in humility. So he reverses that. Then what's so fascinating is that they were seeking to make a name for themselves. And then what we find out in the second part is that God gives them a name, but it's not the name that they wanted. They wanted to be known and remembered, and they are known and remembered, but it's not a good thing. They are known as Babel, the confused ones. Okay? They, they, we see in verses 1 through 4 that they wanted to stay gathered. We see in verses 5 through 9 that God says, no, you will be scattered. They want to settle, and God says, no, you are sent. And so the short-term response that God has is he literally reverses everything they do in verses 1 through 4. But there's a long-term response. There's not just a short-term response, there's a long-term response. And listen, the reason why there has to be a long-term response is because God knew that this was a long-term problem. This problem wasn't new, it was a problem that kept happening again and again and again and again. It kept reoccurring, and so the reason why God has to have a long-term response is because it was a long-term problem. Here's what you might not know about the geography of the ancient Near East. If you look at where they were building, it says they were building in the plain of Shinar or Shinar. What's so interesting about that is that it was located between the Tigris and the Euphrates. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, that is the very same location that the Garden of Eden was in. So they're in the same location that Adam and Eve were, and they're committing the same exact sin that Adam and Eve were committing. 
They were being prideful. They were being self-reliant. They were doing something outside of the will of God. They were seeking to be God, it says in Genesis chapter 3. And it says they were seeking to get in the heavens, which is another way of saying the same thing, in Genesis chapter 11. Same location, same temptations. And so the reason why God had to provide a long-term solution is because this had become a long-term problem. He knew that, listen, I can, try, I can send you anywhere. I can put you anywhere else on planet Earth. The problem is that wherever you're, you go, your sinful heart will come with you. And so you're just going to keep creating little babbles everywhere you go because that's what selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-reliant sinners do. And so God knew he had to provide a long-term solution. God knew that what we needed was not new geography. What we needed was grace. He knew that what we needed was not new architecture. What we needed was atonement. He knew that what we needed was not a change of location. What we needed was a change of heart. And that's why God didn't send an architect. He didn't send a city planner. He didn't send a construction worker. God sent us a savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. What's beautiful about this passage is that in this passage, God comes down. But what we find out is that in the New Testament, God comes down again. Listen, the first time God comes down, he comes down to evaluate our sin. The second time God comes down, he comes down to expiate our sin. The first time God comes down, he came down to judge our sin. The second time God came down, he came down to justify us. Not to judge us, but to justify us. We see that in the first time he came down to see, the second time he comes down to save. The first time God comes down, he he, he comes down to examine a tower. But the second time God comes down, he comes down to die on a cross. God came to bring a long-term solution. Because we are friends, me and my friends, have a long-term problem. God shows up and he gives us not what we want, he gives us what we need. He gives us a greater name, he gives us a greater city, he gives us a greater stairway, and he gives us a greater unity. The first thing that God gives us is a greater name. Now before I give you this list, I need you to know the problem with these people, it wasn't their aspirations, it was their approach. So, so the things that they wanted were good things, but they were trying to get them in a wrong way. The problem wasn't their aspirations. Their problem was their approach. So God gives them a greater name because in Genesis chapter 12, my Bible says, I don't know what yours says, but in Genesis chapter 12, literally the very next chapter, God shows up to Abraham and says, go and I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. Everything that they wanted in Genesis chapter 11, uh, they wanted to achieve, God shows up and says, no, no, you don't achieve it, you receive it. You don't get it through grit, grit, you get it through grace. Everything that they wanted in Genesis chapter 11, God gives to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God gives us a greater name. That's why one of, my, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Luke chapter 10. The disciples show up and they're talking to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, you're not going to believe it. The demons were submitting to us. And, and they were just doing everything we said. It was awesome. And we were casting out demons. And Jesus says, listen, listen, don't rejoice that demons submit to you. But rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. In God, we have been given a greater name. 
And it doesn't come from us climbing down up to heaven. It comes, down, it comes from heaven coming down to us. But he doesn't just give us a greater name. He gives us a greater city. He gives us a greater city. One of the things that you see is that they are heading east. They keep going east. They keep going east. The thing about east is that east, in the, especially in the book of Genesis, was the direction of sin. It was the direction of disobedience. When God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he puts them east of Eden. Then you fast forward to the story of Cain. Cain sins and then he goes east. Then when Lot and Abraham are trying to figure out what land they were going to pick, Lot picks to go east because it says that it reminded him of the garden of the Lord. Later on when Jacob is sinning and running away from his family, it says that he went to the people of the eastern tribes. Every time people go east, they are sinning against God. But I think part of the reason why they kept doing it is because they knew they couldn't go west. Because in order to go west, the Bible says there was an angel with a flaming sword. And that the only way we could get, go west, the only way we can go back into the garden is if someone took that sword for us. And what the Bible says is that the person who took that sword for you and for me was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus took the sword so that we can get back into city, the city. It says in Hebrews that Jesus was crucified outside the city so that we might be brought into God's eternal city. So he gives us a greater city. But he also gives us a greater stairway, a greater access. He gives us a greater access because in Luke chapter 18, now mind you, you might not know this, but the way towers were built in those days, they were ziggurats and they were literally steps. It was, imagine a, a pyramid with steps on the side and you would, you would climb up. And then at the top of this ziggurat was a temple and that's where you would meet God. What's, what's so incredible about this story is that these people are trying to make their way up to God. They are literally building a stairway up to God. But in Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler shows up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, listen, you're not ready to be saved because you got to sell all that you own. And when he walks away, the disciples are like, man, if he can't make his way to God, who can? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In this passage, it says that all things are possible for them, but there's one thing that's not possible for us. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus had to become our stairway. That's why in Genesis chapter 28, when, when, when uh, Jacob is sitting there, he, he's run away from his family, and he's distraught, and he's broken, and he's helpless. He sees a vision. He sees a stairway. And, 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 and the stairway, there's angels, and, and there's angels going up and down the stairway. Well, what we find out later on in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the stairway. He's not at the top of the stairway. He is the stairway. He's the only way we're going to get to heaven. He's the only way we're going to get to God. Listen, the only way that you and I are ever going to meet God is not at the top of a tower, but it's at the foot of a cross. Can I get an amen? And then lastly, he gives us a greater unity. See, these people seem united, but it was a false unity that they had. It was false. It was only a matter of time before they would start bickering. It was only a matter of time before they would have started to divide. But what we see is that what they tried to do uh, 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 artificially here happens partially in Acts chapter 2 and then permanently in Revelation chapter 7. In Acts chapter 2, we see the reversal of Babel. Instead of languages being confused, they all start speaking one language in order for people to hear about not the glory of man, but the glory of God. It happens partially there, but then what we see then in Revelation 7 is it happens permanently. That one day we will all stand before the throne and there will be nations and tribes and tongues all worshiping the same God. And listen, there are going to be 10,000 different tongues. 
there still wouldn't be enough tongues to describe the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And so what we see is that we have a multi-layered problem, but God provides a multi-layered solution. Listen, our issue is not our aspirations, it's our approach. Our issue, listen, if sin, think about it this way, if sin is man climbing up to God in pride, then salvation is God coming down to man in humility. Our salvation, our security, our satisfaction, our significance are found not at the top of a tower, but at the foot of a cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for your goodness. We are so grateful for your mercy. We are so grateful for your love. Lord, our towers, many of our towers are not bad. They're good things. But I pray that you would forgive us for making them God things. I pray that this morning would be the morning that we put our towers back where they belong, which is right in the center of your will, right in the center of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, from this moment on to not be empire builders, but to be kingdom expanders. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people say.